right, well, I think we may uh, get started here. I know there's probably still a, a few on their way coming back with tea and coffee. I've only lived in Ireland for a year and a half, but I have learned you do not take Irish people away from their tea. So, to give you only 20 minutes to grab tea is a cruelty this morning. But uh, we probably should get going or else I'm going to keep it from your lunch. And that might be an even worse sin. So we, we better get going this morning. Um, look, thanks for joining me here uh, for the Doctrine track. It's a hard choice, I think, between the three. Uh, I almost went to another one and then realized I was supposed to be here. But, uh, yeah, thanks for coming. And I hope this will be helpful and enjoyable for you. As I understand it, this part of the days is meant to be a little more content-based, so a little more teaching and training, but also a little more interactive. And so we're going to have some time for interaction, for chatting amongst yourselves in little groups as well as we work through some of this content together. Um, so just to introduce myself briefly, and I'd love to introduce Shane, who's the other guy who's teaching with me, but he's not here yet, actually. So uh, I'm doing today, he's doing tomorrow, so we're all okay. But um, yeah, just to tell you a little bit about myself, um, my name is Kevin Gabriel. Um, I was born in central Canada uh, to an Egyptian father and American mother, and I married an Irish woman, so I have no idea who I am. Uh, my wife, Christine, her parents are from Dublin. They emigrated to Canada, and so that's where we met. Uh, we've been married for 10 years, last month. We have two children, Owen, who is three, and Ellie, who is just about two. And you'll see them bumping around somewhere out there. So, um, yeah, and we moved uh, to Cork a year and a half ago from Canada. So we were down at Douglas Baptist Church in Cork serving there, and then I do some lecturing for Munster Bible College, which is in that area as well. So I guess that's why I was asked to do the doctrine track, perhaps. But yeah, that's a little bit about myself. Um, and then I'm sure Shane will introduce himself tomorrow to you. Why don't we start? I want to read that verse that we learned and sung. Does anyone, would anyone like to sing it for us? <laughs> I'm not going to either. Let me just start by reading that. Anyone remember the reference? 119, 104. That's right. Yeah. It worked. See, it worked. I, I didn't forget it either. So Psalm 119, 114. Let me read that for us as we start. You are my refuge and my shield. I put my hope in your word. It's not a good thing to learn through song. And this is the doctrine track. The, the name of this track is Trusting and Hearing God's Voice. And the goal that they gave us for this track is that we would equip you to hear God speak and to give you confidence in the scriptures as the place where God's word is heard. And that's what we hear in this verse, that we put our hope in God's word. That's what we want to talk about throughout these three sessions over the next three days is building confidence that we can put our hope in God's Word as the place where His voice is heard for us. So we have three sessions. This session is all about trusting God's Word. Why should we rely on God's Word as the place where we hear His voice? And I should say, before I forget, there we do have a handout. There's a QR code at the door. It also is just sent out in the WhatsApp group as well. So if you just go into the WhatsApp group, the Doctrine Track, Trusting and Hearing God's Voice. It might help you to track along with me there uh, so that I don't lose you to have that handout open. So why don't, we, why don't we pray as we get started, and then we will uh, have a little bit of discussion together. Let's pray. Lord God, we are in awe of the fact that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who has revealed yourself to us through your word. Lord, what, a, what an act of grace that is to us, that you would speak to us. And Father, as we consider uh, this today, this topic of the reliability of your word, of trusting your word, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that they would grow in confidence in your word, that this is where your voice is heard. Lord, because we need to hear your voice. As we were hearing last night, we need to listen to your voice. So help us now as we consider this together. Amen. Okay, so this session is all about talking about relying on God's word, trusting God's word. Why should we?
trust God's word. And there's a problem with that, isn't there? In our culture today, many, many people do not trust, do not rely on God's word. So here's what I want you to do, just to get you warmed up as we're together. Just in your rows or maybe a few people around you, three or four people, I want you to take two minutes to discuss this question. You'll see it on your handout if you haven't pulled up. What are some of the barriers that people in our context have today to trusting the Bible? What kinds of barriers do they have to relying on God's word or trusting the Bible? Perhaps in your church or just in the community around you. So go, you have two minutes. Shout them out. What are some of the barriers people have to trusting the Bible? There's so much information out there, and so much of it is untrustworthy that the Bible just gets lost. Sure. Yeah. It's old and irrelevant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No belief in God at all. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't understand it. Yeah, absolutely. If they're totally self-sufficient, mm -hmm. you're you're part of it. Mm-hmm. Oh. My church says different. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's full of inaccuracies. Mm -hmm. It depends where the Bible is now in the approval. Mm -hmm. uh, what, you need, what the Bible means to. Mm -hmm. I learned a little song. The Bible sounds like a rock and dot. It means the region song of the time. It paves its burden for the truth eternal. And they glow with the lights of mine. Mm -hmm. So that reminded me as a child growing up. Mm. Mm. Very good, yeah. But there's many, many barriers to relying on the Word of God, to trusting the Word of God, right? Just some of the ones I wrote down that you guys highlighted as well. Some people will say, well, there's errors in the Bible, scientific errors, historical errors. There's contradictions in the Bible. Genealogies don't line up and these kinds of things. They're, it's been corrupted over time. We can't trust the text. It's just the work of people, not the work of God. So why should we rely on it? Or perhaps when we hear the most today, it's out of touch, it's irrelevant, and we should not listen to its voice. 
And it's important, I think, for us as Christians to recognize that these barriers change over time in our cultures. Perhaps they're always there in some way, but things like scientific errors, contradictions, corruption over time, I don't think, at least for my generation and those below me, that's the normal thing you hear out on the street today. People probably haven't even done that much research about it. Today, the main thing is that the Bible is not just viewed as untrustworthy, it's viewed as immoral and oppressive, isn't it? At best, it represents outdated ways of thinking. At worst, it represents hate speech. That's how people think more about the Bible today, isn't it? And that's a massive challenge for us as Christians, isn't it? Because as Christians, we are convinced that God has spoken, that we have access to his words, and that his words are the final word for us. So let's think through, in light of some of these challenges, why should we trust the Bible? Why should we consider it reliable and a, and a reliable testimony of truth? Now, if you look at your handouts there, I summarized for you there are three conditions that must be met in order for us to trust the Bible. And perhaps you've never thought about it this way, perhaps you have. But there's three things that must be in place in order for us to actually say the Bible is the reliable, trustworthy Word of God. Condition number one, God has spoken to humanity and His words have been written down. Really, you could split that in two, right? But we'll just count that as one. God has spoken and those words have been written down. That's the first thing we would need to say. Second thing we would need to say, we've identified which writings contain God's words. It's not just any writing out there, but those ones that God has spoken and have been written down, we've identified which ones those are. And then third, those writings have been preserved faithfully until today. Do you see how that works? Those conditions, all three of those are equally important. You can think of them as the three legs of a three-legged stool. You take one out, the whole thing falls over, right? Because if for example, number one and number two are in place. God has spoken, we've identified those writings, but they haven't been preserved faithfully. Well, then how could we know it's God's word? It's been corrupted. Or if perhaps we've identified the writings and they've been preserved faithfully, but it's not actually God who has spoken, then what's the use of that? All three of those things must be in place. And what I want to do today is focus mainly on the first one that God has spoken, and those words have been written down. I think that this is the biggest barrier out of these three for people today. Uh, would, would you agree with that? Again, not that the other isn't a barrier. Those other two are real things that we need to think through as Christians. But what I want to do, and I have it written down there in your handout, is recommend two books for you on those second two conditions that are in the bookshop. The first book is Scribes and Scriptures. The amazing story of how we got the Bible. It's in the bookshop there. That is the best single resource I've ever read on why you should trust the canon of Scripture that we have, that we found the right writings, and that those writings have been preserved faithfully for today. It's exhaustive, but extremely accessible. So that's a very helpful book to read if you're interested in that topic. Then the other one I have there that's also in the bookshop is Can We Trust the Gospels? by Peter Williams. If you're looking at the Gospels specifically, that would be a helpful resource. So this is just me saying those last two points are important, but I don't think that's the primary question we're dealing with today. So we're going to focus on the first one more, that God has spoken and his words have been written down. Because this is the biggest stretch for people today, that God would actually have definitively spoken authoritative words into this world. We live in a postmodern age, right? And that's a philosophical term. It's a term that gets thrown around a lot. But one of the ways that people have described that that I think is really helpful in understanding it is a postmodern world is described by incredulity towards meta narratives. And that's a big chunk of words. <laughs> and let me just unpack that a little bit. People are incredulous, shocked, horrified at the thought that you would say there is a big story that has authority over my life, right? Isn't that how people live around you? Isn't that how they think? Incredulity towards meta-narratives, big stories that explain your life, my life, 
and the lives of all around us. Like someone who comes and says, we're all sinners. Jesus has died for our sins to make a way for us to live with God again. That's a meta-narrative you bring into their life, and they say, whoa, whoa, that's not my truth, right? So this is the biggest barrier I think people have today to trusting the Bible. Most people is actually saying God has spoken, and those words have been written down. People might believe in God, in a God today, but it's not a personal God who has spoken to them. So let's move on, and I want to talk about, again, this first one. God has spoken to humanity. His words have been written down. Why should we trust that, that that is true? So let's move on to think about this doctrine that we call the doctrine of inspiration. We get a chance to chat with each other again for a few minutes again here. If you see on your hand out there, I want you to just turn to those same people. You have two minutes. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? And what don't we mean when we say that? What do you think? Okay, two minutes to chat with the people next to you. That's what it meant, that it was inspired. Or God influenced them in, in a unique 
way, but the words were up to the authors, the humans themselves. I think this is all wrong, in case you're wondering. But these are all things that Christians have said. Or, then you get on the far opposite end of the spectrum, you have what's called the dictation theory. God literally dictated his words to the authors of the Bible. So how do we decide? How do we decide what it means that the Bible is God's word? That it is inspired? And even if we affirm that it's inspired, what do we mean by that? Because what's at stake here is the trustworthiness of God's word, isn't it? Is it entirely trustworthy or partly? Is it a witness to God's word? Or is it God's word itself? Well, we're going to come to a definition later, but the first thing we want to do is say, what does the Bible say about itself? That's the testimony we should hear first, right? What does the Bible claim about itself? Why should we believe that the Bible is reliable, that it's God's word? Well, I have two reasons for you here. The first reason is we should believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's inspired, because it says it is. Now, that probably sounds like circular reasoning, doesn't it, right? You're like, well, why would you... That's not a claim to be inspired. If it, the Bible itself says it is, why should you believe what the Bible says, but where's the first place we look to learn about a book? At the book itself, right? Yes, we read the book. We listen to the book's own claims about itself, and then we evaluate those claims, right? But that's what we need to do with the Bible first, is we would say, well, what does the Bible say about itself? There's no use in us coming up with some definition for inspiration based on some thoughts that we have, but what does the Bible say about itself? And what does the Bible mean by that? What, how does it explain the fact that it is inspired? We ought to come first with open ears saying, what does the scripture say about itself? And then we can make claim or, or evaluate it based on those claims. You might think of it like a weight loss book. You listen to its claims about itself, and then maybe you evaluate it based on its own claims, but first you need to hear the claims that it makes about what it can do in your life or what it says. Not that I'm comparing the Bible to a weight loss book. <laughs> Just to explain how that works. So what does the Bible claim about itself? Well, perhaps if we were to ask, okay, well, what's a text you might go to? You'd probably go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, right? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Good. We'll go there in a minute. But I think we need to build a more cumulative case than that when we talk about what does the Bible say about itself. So I'm going to give you a six-part argument, okay? A six-part argument that all of Scripture testifies to being the very words of God, okay? And you can see this in your handout if you want to follow along with me. A six-part argument for all of Scripture claiming to be the very words of God. Okay? Point number one. God spoke his very words through the Old Testament prophets, those who wrote the Old Testament. That's the first claim the Bible makes about itself. You might think of that phrase you see when you're reading through the Old Testament, thus says Yahweh. 293 times in the Old Testament, that exact wording is used. Many other times, something similar to that is used. The Old Testament prophets claim to speak on God's behalf in the first person. Not, I'm a testament or a witness to God's word, but I am God's word. This is God's word. Thus says Yahweh. We might be used to seeing this in the prophetic literature, but think, for example, of the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, who is Moses. Exodus 4, verse 12, God says to him, I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. That is what the prophet did in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament prophet spoke, they spoke on God's behalf. So we might ask, well, did God speak or did the prophet speak? Which one was it, right? This is one of the questions we have when it comes to inspiration. Well, look at, I have it there written there for you, 2 Peter 1, verse 19 through 21. This is the answer that Peter gives to this question. So who speaks, the prophet or God? He says, 
we have the prophetic word more firm, fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, now listen, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. Peter's writing about the Old Testament here, right? Men spoke. It was men who were speaking. God was not dictating. Men were speaking as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the question is, did God speak or did the prophet speak? Yes. They both spoke, right? The Spirit of God carried them as they spoke. God says to Moses, I'll be with your mouth so that you will say my words. Okay, that's the first thing. Second, God not only spoke through the prophets, but he commanded the prophets to write his words down so that they would be a permanent testimony. And I have a bunch of verses written for you there, but I'm not going to look these all up, but just as places where different prophets, God commands them to write it down. I'll just read one for you here, maybe a couple, to just show you this. Exodus 17, verse 14. Obviously, God dealing here with Moses. Exodus 17, verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial or a remembrance in a book. And then recite it in the ears of Joshua. So why is he writing it down? So that he can remember it, right? So that others can remember the word of God. God has spoken uniquely through this prophet. Now he must write it down so that others can remember those words as well. And so we have this accumulation through the Old Testament period of a group of writings that are the sacred scriptures. That's how they refer to them, the words of God himself, because God spoke through the prophets and then commanded those prophets to write it down so that they would be a permanent testimony. I think we've lost this in our day of soft copies, right? You come in here, you scan the QR code, and you have my handouts in a soft copy. It seems permanent. That's not how it worked in the ancient world, right? In the ancient world, if something that was said was going to be remembered, it had to be written down, because that's the only way that it could continue. And so we have those well-known verses in 2 Timothy 3, where Paul writes to Timothy, from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred writings. They're not just words spoken, they became writings as well. Writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, Old Testament, this is what he's saying, is breathed out by God, right? Really, we should use the term expiration, not inspiration. Better word. Inspiration is, expiration is, scriptures are expired by God breathed out by God. These sacred writings breathed out by God. Okay? Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Stage number three. Jesus and his apostles affirmed that the Old Testament scriptures are the words of God's Spirit. That God's Spirit breathed out these words. And I have a bunch of things just showing you that where they actually explicitly say Jesus and his apostles, that the Spirit spoke in the Old Testament. So you see there Mark 12, 35 to 36. Jesus here is citing Psalm 110, verse 1. And he says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see that? Jesus says, David spoke in the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.16, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David. You hear that? Acts 28.25, citing Isaiah 6, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah. So who spoke? Isaiah or the Holy Spirit? Yes. Right? 
Hebrews 3 verse 7, citing Psalm 95, the Holy Spirit says, or I think perhaps the most remarkable one of all, in Hebrews 10, 15 through 17, the Holy Spirit bears witness for us, for after saying, he quotes Jeremiah 31, 33, then he adds Jeremiah 31, 34. In other words, the Spirit doesn't just kind of inspire vaguely. He says this verse, then he says this verse. The Holy Spirit speaks down to the words that we have in the Old Testament. And Jesus and his apostles affirm that for us. And this is then what Peter gets at in 1 Peter 1, when he speaks about the prophets who are prophesying about the grace to come, and he says they inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. They were aware that this was happening. They weren't just put into a trance and God dictated it to them. It says they were aware and they were wondering, as the Spirit of God is in them, they're wondering what person or time will this be as the Spirit is predicting the suffering of Christ. Isn't that incredible? All right, we need to pick this up. Number four, this is remarkable. Jesus claimed this same authority for his own teaching. So not just did he affirm the authority, this is the word of Yahweh in the Old Testament, but he claimed this authority in his own teaching. You might think of, um, and we, we heard this actually last night, Gary re referenced this, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks, he says, I haven't come to abolish the law, the prophets, not one iota of them will pass away. And then what does he say right after affirming the authority of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament? He says, you've heard it was said, but I say to you. That is audacious, isn't it? Someone to come along, a Jewish teacher, and say, yeah, yeah, you've heard the law, here's what I say to you instead. Right? But Jesus, after affirming the authority of the law, comes and says, actually, let me interpret it for you and bring another word from God for you. Or you might think in John 6, 36, Jesus says, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Does that sound familiar now? The Holy Spirit inspiring the Old Testament? Jesus says, the words I'm speaking are spirit to you. So Jesus claims that same authority for himself. And then he anticipated, number five, giving that same authority to his apostles. So we won't go through both of these just for the sake of time, but in John 16, 12 through 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. I think perhaps sometimes when we read those, we think, yeah, the Spirit today is leading me into truth. That's not really what he's saying there. This is a promise for the apostles, where Jesus says to them, he promises them, I will send you the Spirit, and he will bring you the very words of God, so that you may write them down. Because there's more than what I can say for you right now. So Jesus takes this authority himself, he promises to give it to his apostles, and then lastly, number six, Paul and the other apostles assumed this authority. They knew this is what they were doing. So you look there in 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 13, in verse 13, Paul says, we teach this, we impart this to you in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Wow. What a claim to authority that Paul would say, we are speaking to you words from the Spirit. He goes on, and you might remember that kind of strange part in 1 Corinthians 7, when he's dealing with singleness and marriage and divorce and all these things. And at one point he says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. And then another place he says, not the Lord, but I. Paul's actually distinguishing there in that very strange passage Here's me speaking. I would just encourage you to do this. And then he goes back to, it's not I speaking, it's the Lord. This is the Lord speaking to you as I write these words to you. So that the apostles assumed that same authority. 
that Jesus had assumed himself. So what do we conclude from all of that, from those six steps that we walked through? The Holy Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, are the very words of God. That's what the Bible claims about itself. They are breathed out by the Spirit of God to his prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. That's what the Bible claims about itself, right? And so we could, I have there for you a definition we could use for inspiration. If, if you want it kind of a handy way, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? The inspiration of Scripture refers to the act whereby the Holy Spirit came on the authors of Scripture, causing them to write exactly what God intended, while simultaneously preserving each author's writing style and personality. This supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon the human authors means the author's words are God's words, and therefore reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. Isn't, I'm just thinking again of, of what Gary read us from Deuteronomy 4 yesterday. Who else heard God speak from the fire and lived? And yet, friends, we hear God speak and we live, right? When we hear him. Martin Luther said, let the man who would hear God speak read Holy Scripture. You want to hear God speak? That's where you'll hear it. So this is what the Bible claims about itself. Again, remember, this is all under the heading of why should we trust the Bible? Why should we believe that the Bible is inspired? Well, first off, because the Bible says it is. And that's what the Bible claims about itself. We should have rock-solid confidence, friends, as believers, about what the Bible claims to be. It contains the words of God, the very words of God, the final authority of God. So as we talk with people around us, perhaps who do not trust the Bible, can I just say the burden of proof should be on them, not on us. What I mean by that is the Bible says that it is the word of God. We should take it at that face value, and we should turn to our friends then and say, this is what the Bible claims about itself, now defend why it's not. Rather than us feeling like we need to defend why it is, we should, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but the burden of proof lies on them, because that's what the Bible claims about itself. They need to prove that it's wrong. We don't need to prove that it's right. We just should tell them what the Bible says about itself, right? Does that make sense? So this is the Bible's claim about itself. And then the second step then is then we do evaluate it based on those claims because that, that makes sense. It's good for us then to say, okay, this is what it says. Well, does that actually match? Does that actually hold water? So the second reason there that I would give you is that the Bible is inspired because only inspiration can account for its uniqueness. So not just that it says it is, but actually only inspiration can account for the Bible's own uniqueness. Why should we trust what the Word of God says about itself? I have two things for you there. First, there's external evidence. Now, I think this is where we normally go. When people are saying, well, I don't trust the Bible, or whatever, we might point to things like fulfilled prophecies, right? We say, well, it predicted hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, or those kinds of things. We might point to archaeological discoveries, perhaps, some of us, if we've done some reading, we're into this kinds of thing. And there's very much a place for this. It's good that we think through these kind of things, through arguments for why prophecies and archaeology affirm the truth of Scripture. But the problem, friends, with those kind of things is that they are easily dismissed by other people. I've read enough in the field of Old Testament to know that the evidence is always rewritten so that the text no longer is miraculous. You know, if Daniel prophesied a few hundred years ahead of time what was going to come through all the kingdoms that would follow him, what do the liberal scholars do? Well, they just say, oh, well, he didn't actually write it at that time. He actually, this was written 200 years later, right? That's how they deal with this kind of evidence. And so it can be very frustrating when you get into those conversations. I'm not, what we're saying is true and it's important. But often it doesn't hold a lot of weight to someone, does it? 
when we say those kind of things, they're like, oh, well, they probably just didn't know, or it was actually, it wasn't written when it was claimed to be written. It was written 500 years later. So often that kind of evidence, as important as it is, and as much as I think the Bible stands up to that kind of evidence, it doesn't really gain a lot of traction as we talk with people. I think a more important and a more helpful place for us to point, while not discounting that, is the internal evidence of the Bible. What I mean by that is evidence from in the Bible itself that proves its uniqueness as the Word of God. I think this is more compelling, it's more self-evident, and it's more powerful to point to these kind of things. And the kinds of things I'm talking about here are the unity of the Bible, the coherence of the Bible, the fact that the Bible tells one story, even though it's written over about 1,500 years, the Bible tells one story, remarkably. The unity of the theology of the Bible, that it's not random people saying this and then someone else says that, but it has unity and coherence. Over 1,500 years of being written. And I have just below that there, if, if, if that's not something perhaps that you've been introduced to a lot, is really seeing the big story of the Bible, I think this is one of the most helpful ways that you can grow in just your own confidence in the Bible. I know it's done that for me. The more I learn about how unified the story of Scripture is, the more my wonder and worship at the Word of God grows. So a couple books I'd recommend if you'd like to grow in that. One by Greg Gilbert called The Epic Story of the Bible. Another one by Stephen Wellen called Christ from Beginning to End. Those are just two really helpful introductory books that help you see the storyline of Scripture, which is compelling. I think a much more compelling evidence to introduce to people to see why we should trust it. But that's not all, right? I mean, sitting in this room, do we trust the Word of God just because, well, we've seen a prophecy that was fulfilled? Or just because, well, we've seen a storyline that played out? Is that why we trust the Word of God, ultimately? Those are reasons why we do, but there's something more subjective in why we trust the Word of God, isn't there? There's something where when we read the Bible, we see glory. And that's subjective, isn't it? It's not actually something that we can objectively show to someone. But there's something, haven't you experienced that? Haven't you seen it in other people where they're reading and suddenly it pierces to their heart? It's almost like this book is living and active, something like that. And it's hard to quantify what exactly that is, isn't it? But ultimately, how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? Why do we rely on it? Because in it we see the glory of God, displayed in the face of Jesus Christ, right? And that's why, ultimately, trust in the Bible, not to discount all the important evidence and archaeology and text history and all these kinds of things, but ultimately, trust in the Word of God is a personal trust, isn't it? It's actually because we trust Jesus himself, because we've seen his glory. So I want to move on then, and we're getting close to the ending of our time. I have there a problem, there's veiled glory. And I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 4, because... As much as the people around us in our communities, we long for them to trust the Word of God. And we might say, look, look read this book on fulfilled prophecies, or have you seen you know, maybe this, this archaeological discovery that, that has proven something? We might say those things. We, we might try to work through the contradictions and say, look, look, it really isn't a contradiction. Or we might work through these perhaps errors that people would bring up and say, well, actually, that makes sense. We work on all those things, and that's good. But the greatest challenge that people have to believing and trusting the Word of God is they do not see its glory. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them 
from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now listen to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's that? Genesis 1, right? The creation of the world. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, why do you trust the Word of God? It's because God has shown light into your heart so that you have seen, as Paul says, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's actually why you trust the Bible. Not because you can just tally up all these prophecies or something. Those are important. You trust the Bible because God has shown into your heart and you have seen the glory of his Savior, right? So for someone to see what Paul is telling us here, I don't know if you've maybe seen this before, but why does he make that comparison with God who said, let light shine out of darkness? Why does he compare the creation of the world with seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus? I think Paul's point is it takes a universe-creating miracle for someone to trust the Scriptures. God has to shine. The God who has the power to say to an empty universe, light shine. That God must exercise that same creative power for someone to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a miraculous thing that we're dealing with here, to actually trust the Bible, to see the glory of the gospel of Christ, which is what the scriptures are, aren't they? So, my encouragement, not to discount other things we've said, but my encouragement to you is, yes, we should engage in thinking through difficult issues, giving answers, all these kinds of things when it comes to trusting God's Word. But, ultimately, we must remember that it comes down to this. No one will trust God's Word unless God shines light into their hearts. And so as we interact with People around us don't trust God's word. Ultimately, what we do is we say, Lord, would light shine forth into this person's heart? Because if they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, all those questions will go away, won't they? They will trust this God, and they will trust his word. So, and we're almost done. Let me quickly give you some wrap-up summaries. I was told that parents perhaps should leave yes. at half 12 yeah. to pick up their children. I'm sorry. Probably got just five more minutes quickly here as I wrap it up for the rest of you. I was told I could go over a little bit because we started late. I'm sorry. Couple, but yeah. Yeah, for parents, probably you should go. I'm so, just because I, I think that's what we were told. Let me, let me give you a couple wrap-up things about living in this tension between the Bible contains the very words of God, but no one can see that glory unless God shines light into their hearts. How do we live in that tension? Let me give you five, hopefully practical, upshots of what we've discussed. Number one, we should have total, absolute confidence in the reliability of God's words. That goes back to those six reasons I gave you for what Scripture testifies about itself. We ought to have total confidence in the reliability of God's words. But second, we also ought to trust that God's words are how he reveals his glory to other people. Right? Isaiah 55, my word shall not return empty. Hebrews 4, the word is living and active. If we want to know how does God turn the lights on, in someone's mind, so they see the glory, it's through hearing the words, right? The message of the gospel of Christ. So we should have confidence in the word, and we should trust that these words are how people see the glory of God. So I think that even as we think about people in our communities around us who don't trust the word of God, or perhaps even Christians who are struggling with their trust in the word of God, one of our goals should be, are they reading and hearing and listening to the Word of God as much as possible? 
Because that's actually where God will reveal his glory to them, is in the word of God itself. So rather than necessarily just engaging in apologetic conversations, are we just basking them in the words of God? Because that's where they'll see his glory. Three, we should pray that God will illuminate the hearts of those around us. We expose them to God's word as much as we can, and then we pray. We say, God, we can't do this. I can't argue them into the kingdom. I don't want to anyway. It's your initiative. Would you help them to see? So we ought to be, as we expose them to the word of God, constantly praying that God would illuminate them, that God, who says, let light shine out of darkness, would open their eyes to see the glory of God. And then last, oh, I got four things, not five. There you go. Fourth, and this actually goes back to what we were talking about this morning in Titus. We ought to model the beauty, joy, and relevance of the Bible and its story in our church communities. Because again, remember, the barriers that people have to believing are not mainly due to rational, well-reasoned arguments. That's not why most people in our communities don't believe the Bible, because they've read everything on textual criticism, and they definitely know that the Bible's not trustworthy, right? That's not most people in our communities. They don't believe because the God of this world has blinded them, Paul says, right? They've been discipled by our culture to love themselves, to value themselves, to value their own sins, their own stories, instead of the gospel of Jesus. And how does God vindicate the message of his gospel? How does he put its glory on display? Through his word, in his people, right? It's in the people of God that they see the glory of God as well. As the word of God transforms our churches such that, as Jesus says in John 13, by this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another, right? So again, yes, we engage in arguments and in apologetics and those kind of things, but ultimately, as we seek to model the beauty and joy of the gospel in our communities, this is what the Lord will use to vindicate his message, show its glory to those around us. So, I should let you go for lunch. But our goal today was just to say what we read today is what God has spoken. And so as we pick it up tomorrow, uh, Shane Dean is going to be picking it up tomorrow. And tomorrow he's going to be talking about, it's not just that God has given us his words, but God's words he's given us are sufficient for everything that we need today. So we'll pick it up tomorrow with that. Let me just quickly pray as we finish, and I'll leave you to go. Lord God, we are in awe of the fact that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, for myself, for my brothers and sisters, that we would have this confidence driving us day by day. Lord Jesus, you say that you have the words of eternal life, and we even pray in our churches, in our communities, Lord, we pray that you would use your words of eternal life to show your glory to those around us so that more and more might come to know and love and trust you as they see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is something we can't do. And so we rely on you. We pray that you would show your glory in our community so that more and more might come to love and trust you. Now, Lord, we thank you for this food that we can enjoy and for the opportunity to be together. In Christ's name.